Hi class, this is Dr. T. We are at 1.3 Communication Principles in our Fundamentals of Communication class. Our learning objectives are 1. Discuss how communication is integrated in various aspects of your life. Explain how communication meets physical, instrumental, relational, and identity needs. Explain how the notion of a process fits into communication. And discuss the ways in which communication is guided by culture and context. Let's begin. Taking this course will change how you view communication. Most people admit that communication is important, but it's often in the back of our minds or viewed as something as um, that just happens. Putting communication at the front of your mind and becoming more aware of how you communicate can be informative and have many positive effects. When I first started studying communication as an undergraduate, I began seeing the concepts we learned in class in my everyday life. When I worked in groups, I was able to apply what I had learned about group communication to improve my performance and overall experience. I also noticed interpersonal concepts and theories as I communicated within various relationships. Whether I was analyzing mediated messages or considering the ethical implications of a decision I made before I made it, Studying communication allowed me to see more of what was going on around me, which allowed me to be more actively and competently, uh, and competently participate in various communication con contexts. In this section, as we learn the principles of communication, I encourage you to take note of aspects of communication that you haven't thought about before and begin to apply the principles of communication to various parts of your life. Communication is integrated into all parts of our lives. This book is meant to help people see the value of communication in the real world and in our real lives. When I say real, I don't mean to imply that there's a part of our world or lives that is not real. Since communication is a practical field of study, I use the word real to emphasize that what you're reading in this book isn't just about theories and vocabulary or passing a test in and giving a good speech. I also don't mean to imply that there is a divide between the classroom and the real world. The real world is whatever we're experiencing at any given moment. In order to explore how communication is integrated into all parts of our lives, I have divided up our lives into four spheres, academic, professional, personal, and civic. The boundaries and borders between these spheres are not solid and there is much overlap. After all, much of what goes on in, the, in a classroom is present in a professional environment in the classroom as long as it's been seen as a place to prepare students be, to become active and responsible citizens in their civic lives. The philosophy behind this approach is called integrative learning, which students which encourages students to reflect on how the content they are learning connects to our classes they, they have taken or are taking their professional goals, and their civic responsibilities. Academic. It's probably not difficult to get you as students in a communication to see the relevance of communication to your academic lives. At least during the semester, studying communication is important to earn a good grade in the class, right? Beyond the relevance to your grade in this class, I challenge you to try and make explicit connections between this course and the courses you have taken before and are currently taking. Then, when you leave this class, I want you to connect the content in future classes back to what you've learned here. If you can begin to see these connections now, you can build on the foundational communication skills you learn in here to become a more competent communicator, which will undoubtedly also benefit you as a student. 
Aside from wanting to earn a good grade in class, you may also be genuinely interested in becoming a better communicator. If that's the case, you're in luck because research shows that even people who have poor communication skills can improve a wide range of verbal, nonverbal, and interpersonal skills by taking an introductory communication course. Zabava and Wolvet, 1993. Communication skills are also tied to academic success. Poor listening skills were shown to contribute significantly to a failure in a person's first year of college. Also, students who take a communication course report more confidence in their communication abilities. And these students have higher grade point averages and are less likely to drop out of school. Much of what we do in a classroom, whether it is the interpersonal interactions with our classmates and professor, individual or group presentations or listening, is discussed in this textbook and can be used to build or add or add to a foundation of good communication skills and knowledge that can carry to through to other contexts. Professional. The National Association of Colleges and Employers have found that employers most desire good communication skills in college graduates they may hire, 2010. Desired communication skills vary from career to career, but again, this textbook provides a foundation onto which you can build communication skills specific to your major or field of study. Research has shown that the that introductory communication courses provide important skills necessary for functioning in entry-level jobs, including listening, writing, motivation, motivating, persuading, interpersonal skills, informational interviewing, and small group problem solving. De Silvo, 1980. Interpersonal communication skills are also highly sought after by potential employers, consistently ranking in the top 10 in national surveys. So National Association of Colleges and Employers, 2010. Poor listening skills, lack of concise, and inability to give constructive feedback have been identified as potential communication challenges in professional contexts. Employers appreciate good listening skills and the ability to communicate concisely because efficiency and clarity are often directly tied to productivity and success in terms of profit and or task project completion. Despite the well-documented need for communication skills in the professional world, many students still resist taking communication classes. Perhaps people think they already have good communication skills or can improve their skills on their own. While either of these may be true for some, studying communication can only help. And at such a competitive job market, being able to document that you have received communication instruction and training from communication professionals, the faculty in your communication department can give you the edge needed to stand out from other applicants or employees. Personal. While many students know from personal experience and from the prevalence of communication counseling on television talk shows, and in self-help books that communication forms, maintains, and ends in our interpersonal relationships. They do not know to the extent to which that occurs. I am certain that when we get to the interpersonal communication chapters in this textbook, you will be intrigued and maybe even excited by the relevance and practicality of the concepts and, and theories discussed there. My students often remark that they already knew from experience much of what's discussed in the interpersonal unit of the course. While we do know from experience until we learn from specific vocabulary and develop foundational knowledge of communication concepts and theories, we do not have the tools we 
needed to make sense of these experiences. Just having a vocabulary to name the communication phenomena in our lives increases our ability to consciously alter our communication to achieve our goals, avoid miscommunication, and analyze and learn from our inevitable mistakes. Once we get further into the book, I am sure that the personal implications of communication will become very clear. Civic. The connection between communication and our civic lives is a little more abstract and difficult for students to understand. Many younger people don't yet have a conception of a civic part of their lives because the academic, professional, and personal parts of our lives have so much more daily relevance. Civic engagement refers to working and making a difference in our communities by improving the quality of life of community members, raising awareness about social cultural or political issues, or participating in a wide variety of political and non-political processes. Ehrlich, 2000. The civic part of our lives is developed through engagement with the decision making that goes on in our society at this small group, local, state, regional, national, or international level. Such involvement ranges from serving on neighborhood advisory boards to sending an email to a U.S. senator. Discussions and decisions that affect our communities happen around us all the time, but it takes time and effort to become a part of the process. Doing so allows us to become a part of groups or causes that are meaningful to us, which enables us to work for the common good. This type of civic engagement is crucial to the uh, functioning of a democratic society. Communication scholars have been aware of the connections between communication and a person's civic engagement or citizenship for thousands of years. Aristotle, who wrote the first and most influential comprehensive book on communication 2,400 years ago, taught that it was through our voice, our ability to communicate, that we engage with the world around us, participate in our society, and become a virtuous citizen. It is a well-established and unfortunate fact that younger people between the ages of 18 and 30 are at least are some of the least politically active and engaged members of our democracy. Civic engagement includes, but goes beyond political engagement, which includes things like choosing a political party or advocating for a presidential candidate. Although younger people have tended not to be as politically active as other age groups, the, gen- the current generation of 16 to 29-year-olds, known as the millennial generation, is known to be very engaged in volunteerism and community service. In addition, some research has indicated that college students are eager for civic engagement, but are not finding the resources they need on cap- campuses. Uh, just get, uh, 2012. The American Association of Colleges and Universities has launched several initiatives and compiled many resources for students and faculty regarding civic engagement. I encourage you to explore their website at the following link and try to identify some ways to which you can productively integrate what you're learning in the class to civic engagements. So it's worldwideweb.aacu.org backslash resources backslash civic engagement. Communication meets needs. You hopefully now see that communication is far more than the transmission of information. The exchange of messages and information is important for many reasons, but it is not enough to meet the various needs we have as human beings. While the content of our communication may help us achieve certain physical and instrumental needs, it also feeds into our identities and relationships in ways that far exceed the content of what we say. Physical needs. Physical needs include needs that keep our bodies 
and minds functioning. Communication, which we most often associate with our brain, mouth, eyes, and ears, actually have has many more connections to and affects our physical body and well-being. At the most basic level, communication can alert others that our physical needs are not being met. Even babies cry when they are hungry or sick to alert their caregivers of these physical needs. Asking a friend if you can stay at their house because you got evicted or kicked out of your own place will help you meet your physical need for shelter. There are also strong ties between social function of communication and our physical and psychological health. Human beings are social creatures, which makes communication important for our survival. In fact, prolonged isolation has been shown to severely damage a human. Williams and uh, Zadro, 2001. Aside from surviving, communication skills can also help people thrive. People with good interpersonal communication skills are able to adapt to stress and have less depression and anxiety. Hargay, 2011. Communication can also be therapeutic, which can lessen or prevent physical problems. A research study found that spouses of suicide or accidental death victims who did not communicate about the deaths with their friends were more likely to have health problems such as weight change, headaches, and those who did talk with their friends. Green, Derligi, and Matthews, 2006. Satisfying physical needs is essential for our physical functioning and survival. But in order to socially function and thrive, we must also meet instrumental relational and identity needs. Instrumental needs. Instrumental needs include needs that help us get things done in our day-to-day lives and achieve short and long-term goals. We we all have short and long-term goals that we work on every day. Fulfilling these goals is an ongoing communicative task, which means that we spend much of our time communicating for instrumental needs. Such common instrumental needs include influencing others, getting information we need, or getting support. Uh, uh, Burleson, Metz, and Kirch, 2000. In short, communication that meets our instrumental needs helps us get things done. To meet instrumental needs, we often use communication strategically. Politicians, parents, bosses, and friends use communication to influence others in order to accomplish goals and meet needs. There is a research area within communication that examines compliance gaining communication or communication aimed at getting people to do something or to act in a particular way. Gase and Cider, 1999. Compliance gaining and communicating for instrumental needs is different from coercion, which forces or manipulates people into doing what you want. Section 1.3, Communication Principles. We will discuss communication ethics and learn about communication free from constraint and pressure is an important part of an ethical society. Compliance gaining, um, communication is different from persuasion which we will discuss more in Chapter 11, Informative and Persuasive Speaking. While research on persuasion typically focuses on public speaking and how a speaker persuades a group, compliance-gaining research focuses on our daily interpersonal interactions. Researchers have identified many tactics that people typically use in compliance-gaining communication. Uh, Gase Insider, 1999. As you read through the following list, I'm sure many of these tactics will be familiar to you. Common tactics for compliance gaining. Offering rewards. Seeks compliance in a positive way by promising returns, rewards, or generally positive outcomes. 
threatening punishment, seeks compliance in a negative way by threatening negative consequences such as loss of privileges, grounding, or legal action. Using expertise, seeks compliance by employing that one person knows better than the other based on experience, age, education, or, or intelligence. Liking, seeks compliance by acting friendly and helping to get other people into a good mood before asking them to do something. Debt, seeks compliance by calling in past favors and indicating that one person owes the other. Altruism, seeks compliance by claiming that one person only wants what's best for the other and he or she is looking out for the other person's best interests. And esteem, seeks compliance by claiming that the other person will think more highly of the person if he or she complies or thinks less of the person if he or she does not comply. Relational needs. Relational needs include the needs that help us maintain social bonds and interpersonal relationships. Communicating to fill our instrumental needs helps us function on many levels, but communicating for relational needs helps us achieve the social relating that is an essential part of being human. Communication meets our relational needs by giving us a tool through which we develop, maintain, and end relationships. In order to develop a relationship, we may use nonverbal communication to assess whether someone is interested in talking to us or not, then use verbal communication to strike up a conversation. Then through the mutual process of self-disclosure, a relationship forms over time. Once formed, we need to maintain a relationship, so we use communication to express our continued liking of someone. We can verbally say things like, you're such a great friend, or engage in behaviors that communicate our investments in the relationship, like organizing a birthday party. Although our relationships vary in terms of closeness and intimacy, all individuals have relational needs and all relationships require maintenance. Finally, communication or the lack of it helps us end relationships. We may communicate our deteriorating commitment to a relationship by avoiding communication with someone verbally criticizing him or her or explicitly ending a relationship. From spending time together to checking in with relational partners by text, social media, face-to-face, to celebrating accomplishments, to providing support during difficult times, Communication forms the building blocks of our relationships. Communicating relational needs isn't always positive, though. Some people's relational needs are negative, unethical, or even illegal. Although we may feel the need to be passive-aggressive or controlling, these communicative patterns are not positive and can hurt our relationships. In Chapter 6, Interpersonal Communication Processes, and Chapter 7, Communication and Relationships, we will explore the dark side of communication in more detail. Identity needs. Identity needs include our need to present ourselves to others and to be thought of in a particular and desired ways. What adjectives would you use to describe yourself? Are you funny, smart, loyal, or quirky? Your answer isn't based on who you think you are since much of how we think ourselves is based on our communication with other people. Our identity changes as we progress through life, but communication is the primary means of establishing our identity and fulfilling our identity needs. Communication allows us to present ourselves to others in particular ways. Just as many companies, celebrities, and politicians create a public image, we desire to present different faces in different contexts. The influential scholar Irving Goffman compared self 
uh, presentation to a performance and suggested that we all perform different roles in different contexts. Goffman, 1959. Indeed, competent communicators can successfully manage how others perceive them by adapting to situations and contexts. A parent may perform the role of a stern head of the household, supportive shoulder to cry on, or hip and, um, and culturally a rare friend based on the situation when they are with their child. A newly hired employee may, be, may initially perform the role of a motivated and, and agreeable co-worker, but labor, later perform more leadership behaviors after being promoted. We will learn more about the different faces we present to the world and how we develop our self-concepts through interactions with others in Chapter 2, Communication and Perception. Communication is a process. Communication is a process that involves an interchange of verbal and or nonverbal messages within a continuous and dynamic sequence of events. Hargy, 2011. When we refer to communication as a process, we apply that it doesn't have a strict beginning or and end or flow of a predetermined sequence of events. It can be difficult to trace the origin of a communication encounter since communication doesn't always follow a neat and discernible format, which makes studying communication inter interactions or phenomena difficult. Anytime we pull one part of the process out for a study or closer examination, we artificially pre freeze the process in order to examine it, which is not something that is possible when communicating in real life. But sometimes scholars want to isolate a particular stage of the process in order to gain insight by studying, for example, feedback or eye contact. Doing that changes the very process itself and by the time you have examined a particular stage or component of the process, the entire process may have changed. These snapshots are useful for scholarly interrogation of the communication process, and they can help us evaluate our own communication practices, troubleshoot a problematic encounter we had, or slow things down to account for various contexts before we engage in communication. Dance and Larson, 1976. We have already learned in the transaction model of communication that we communicate using multiple channels and send and receive messages simultaneously. There are also messages and other stimuli around us that we actually never perceive because we can only attend to so much information at one time. The dynamic nature of communication allows us to examine some principles of communication that are related to is processual nature. Next, we will learn that communication messages vary in terms of the, the level of conscious thought and intention. Communication is reversible and communication is unrepeatable. Some scholars have put forth definitions of communication, stating that messages must be intended for others to perceive them in order for the message to count as communication. This, narrowly, this narrow definition only includes messages that are tailored or at least targeted to a, particular, uh, to a particular person or group and excludes any communication that is involuntary. Dance and Larson, 1976. Since intrapersonal communication happens in our heads and isn't intended for others to perceive, it wouldn't be considered as communication. But imagine the following scenario. You and I are riding on a bus and you're sitting across from me. As I sit thinking upon a stressful week ahead, I wrinkle up my forehead, shake my head, and put my hand in my head. Upon seeing this, you think this guy must be pretty stressed out. 
In this scenario, did communication take place? If I really didn't intend for anyone to see the nonverbal communication that went along with my intrapersonal communication, then this definition would say no. But even with words that weren't exchanged, you still generated meaning from the communication I was unintentionally sending. As a communication scholar, I do not take such a narrow definition of communication. Based on the definition of communication from the beginning of this chapter, the scenario we just discussed would count as communication. But this scenario illustrates the point that communication messages are both sent, are, are sent both intentionally and unintentionally. Communication messages also varies in terms of the amount of conscious thought that goes into their creation. In general, we can say intentional communication in, usually includes more conscious thought and unintentional communication includes less. For example, some communication is reactionary and almost completely involuntary. We often scream when we're frightened or say ouch when we stub our toe, stare blankly when we're bored. This isn't the richest type of communication, but it is communication. Some of our interactions are slightly more substantial and include more conscious thought, but are still very routine. For example, we say excuse me when we need to get past someone, say thank you when someone holds the door for us, or say what's up to a neighbor as we pass down the hall. The reactionary and routine types of communication just discussed are common, but the messages most studied by communications scholars are considered structured communication, constructed communication. These messages include more conscious thought and intention than reaction, reactionary or routine messages, and often go beyond ex information exchange to also meet relational and identity needs. As we learn later on, a higher degree of conscious thought and intention doesn't necessarily mean the communication will be effective, understood, or ethical. In addition, ethical communicators can't avoid the responsibility for effects of what they say by claiming they didn't intend for the communication to cause an undesired effect. Communication has short and long-term effects, which illustrates the next principle we will discuss. Communication is irreversible. The dynamic nature of the communication process also means that communication is irreversible. After an intentional interaction has gone wrong, characters in sitcoms and romantic comedies often use the line, can we just start over? As handy as it would be to be able to turn the clock back and redo a failed or embarrassed, embarrassing communication encounter, it's impossible. Miscommunication can occur regardless of the degree of conscious thought and attention put into the message. For example, if David tells a joke that offends his co-worker Beth, then he can't just say, oh, forget I said that, or I didn't intend it to be offensive. The message has been sent, and it can't be taken back. I'm sure we have all wished we, we could have taken back something we have said. Conversely, when communication goes well, we often wish we could recreate it. However, in addition to communication being irreversible, it's also unrepeatable. If you could recreate a good job interview experience just by asking the same questions and telling the same stories about yourself, you can't expect the same results. It, even trying to repeat a communication encounter with the same person won't feel the same or lead to the same results. We've already learned the influence that the context has on, our, on communication and those contexts change frequently. Even if the words and actions stay the same, the physical, psychological, social, relational, and cultural context will vary and ultimately change the communication encounter. Have you ever tried to recount a funny or interesting experience to a friend who doesn't really seem that impressed? These, I guess you had to be there moments, illustrate the fact that communication is 
unrepeatable. Communication is guided by culture and context. As we learned earlier, context is a dynamic component of the communication process. Culture and context also influence how we perceive and define communication. Western culture tends to put more value on senders than receivers and on content rather than, than the context of a message. These cultural values are reflected in our definitions and models of communication. As we will learn in later chapters, cultures vary in terms of having a more individualistic or more cult collectivistic cultural, cultural orientation. The United States is considered an individualistic culture where emphasis is put on individual expression and success. Japan is considered a, a collectivist culture where emphasis is put on group co cohesion and harmony. These are strong cultural values that are embedded in how we learn to communicate. In many collectivist cultures, there is more emphasis placed on silence and nonverbal context. Whether in the United States, <clears throat> Japan, or another country, people are socialized from birth to communicate in culturally specific ways that vary by context. In this section, we will discuss how communication is learned, the rules and norms that influence how we communicate, and the ethical implications of communication. Communication is learned. Most people are born with the capacity and ability to communicate, but everyone communicates differently. This is because communication is learned rather than innate. As we have already seen, communication patterns are relative to the context and culture in which one is communicating, and many cultures have distinct languages consisting of symbols. A key principle of communication is that it is symbolic. Communication is symbolic in the ways in, in that words make our language systems do not directly correspond to something in reality. Instead, they stand in, for, or symbolize something. The fact that communication varies so much among people, context, and cultures illustrates the principle that meaning is not inherent in the words we use. For example, let's say you go to France on vacation and you see the word uh, poison on the menu. Unless you know how to read French, you will not know this symbol is, a, is the English symbol for fish. Those two words don't look at all the same, don't look the same at all, yet they symbolize the same object. If you went by the how the words the word looks alone, you might think that the word, the French word for fresh is more like the English word poison and avoid choosing that for your dinner. Putting a picture of a fish on the menu would definitely help your foreign tourists understand what they're ordering since the picture is an actual representation of an object rather than a symbol for it. All symbolic communication is learned, negotiated, and dynamic. We know that the letters book, B-O-O-K, refer to a bound object with multiple written pages. We also know that the letters truck, T-R-U-C-K, refer to a vehicle with a bed in the back for hauling things. But if we learned in school that the letters T-R-U-C-K refer to a bound object with written pages and B-O-O-K refer to a vehicle with a bed in the back, then that would just make as much sense because the letters don't actually refer to the object in the word itself. Um, only has the meaning that we assign to it. We will learn more in Chapter 3, Verbal Communication, about how language works, but communication is more than the words we use. 
We are all socialized into different languages, but we also speak different languages based on the situation we are in. For example, in some cultures, it is considered inappropriate to talk about family or health issues in public, but it wouldn't be odd to overhear people in a small town grocery store in the United States talking about their children or their upcoming surgery. There are some communication patterns shared by very large numbers of people and some that are are particular to a diet, best friends, for example, who have been inside, um, ha who have their own inside terminology and expressions that wouldn't make sense to anyone else. These examples aren't on the same scale as differing languages, but they still indicate that communication is learned. They also illustrate how rules and norms influence how we communicate. Rules and norms. Earlier, we learned about the transaction model of communication and the powerful influence that social context and the roles and norms associated with social context have on our communication. Whether verbal or nonverbal, mediated or interpersonal, our communication is guided by rules and norms. Phatic communion is an instructive example of how we communicate under the influence of rules and norms. Um, 7th, 2009. Phatic communion refers to scripted and routine verbal interactions that are intended to establish social bonds rather than actually exchanging meaning. When you pass your professor in the hall, the exchange may go as follows. Student, hey, how are you? Professor, fine, how are you? Student, fine. What is the point of this interaction? It isn't surely to uh, actually inquire as to each other's well-being. We have similar phatic interactions when we make comments on the weather or the fact that it's Monday. We often joke about phatic communion because we see that it is pointless, at least on the surface. The, the student and professor might as well just pass each other in the hall and say the following to each other. Generic greeting question, generic greeting question, uh, response and question, generic response. This is an example of communication messages that don't require a high level of conscious thought or convey much actual content or generate much meaning. So if phatic communication is so pointless, why do we do it? The term phatic communion delivers from the Greek word phatos, uh, which means spoken, and the word communion which means connect or bond. As we discussed earlier, communication helps us meet our relational needs. In addition to finding communion through food or religion, we also find communion through our words. But the degree to which and in what circumstances we engage in phatic communion is also influenced by norms and rules. Generally, US Americans find silence and social interactions awkward, which is one uh, sociocultural norm and rule. Um, norm that leads to phatic communion. But when, because we fill the silence with pointless words to meet the social norm, it is also a norm to greet people when you encounter them, especially if you know them. We all know not to unload our physical and mental burdens on the person who asks, how are you? Or go through our to-do list with the person who asks, what's up? Instead, we conform to social norms through this routine type of verbal exchange. Vata communion, like most aspects of communication we will learn about, is culturally relative as well. While most cultures engage in phatic communion, the topics of and occasions for phatic communion vary. Scripts 
for greetings in the United States are common, but scripts for leaving may be more common in another culture. Asking about someone's well-being may be an acceptable fatic communion in one culture, and asking about the health of someone's family may be common in another. Communication has ethical implications. Another culturally and situationally relative principle of communication is the fact that communication has ethical implications. Communication ethics deals with the process of negotiating and reflecting our actions and communication regarding what we believe to be right and wrong. Aristotle said, in the, arena, in the arena of human life, the honors and rewards fall to those who show their good qualities in action. Pearson et al. 2006. Aristotle focuses on actions, which is an important part of communication ethics. While ethics has been studied as a part of philosophy since the time of Aristotle, only more recently has it become applied. In communication ethics, we are more concerned with the decisions people make about what is right or wrong than the systems, philosophies, or religions that informed those decisions. Much of ethics is a gray area. Although we talk about making decisions in terms of what is right and what is wrong, the choice is rarely that simple. Aristotle goes on to say that we should act to the right extent at the right time with the right motive and then in the right way. This quote connects to communication competence, which focuses on communicating effectively and appropriately and will be discussed more in section 1.4, communication competence. Communication has broad ethical implications. Later in this book, we will discuss the importance of ethical listening, how to avoid plagiarism, how to present evidence ethically, and how to apply ethical standards to mass media and social media. These are just a few examples of how communication and ethics will be discussed in this book, but hopefully you can already see that communication ethics is integrated into academic, professional, personal, and civic contexts. When dealing with communication ethics, it's difficult to state that something is 100% ethical or unethical. I tell my students that we all make choices daily that are more ethical or less ethical, and we may confidently make a decision, only later to learn that it wasn't the most ethical option. In such cases, our ethics and goodwill are tested, since in any given situation, multiple options may seem appropriate, but we can only choose one. If, in a situation when we make a decision and we reflect on it and we realize that we could have made a more ethical choice, does that make us a bad person? While many behaviors can be more easily labeled as ethical or unethical, communication isn't always as clear. Murdering someone is generally thought of as an unethical and illegal, but many instances of hurtful speech or even what would some consider hate speech have been protected by free speech. This shows the complicated relationship between protected speech, ethical speech, and the law. In some cases, people see it as their ethical duty to communicate information that they feel is in the public's best interest. The people behind WikiLeaks, for example, have released thousands of classified documents related to wars, intelligence gathering, and diplomatic communication. WikiLeaks claim that exposing information keeps politics and leaders accountable and keeps the public informed. But government officials claim that the release of the information should be considered a criminal act. 
both parties consider the communication unethical and their own communication ethical, the other's unethical. So who's right? Since many of the choices we make when it comes to ethics are situational, contextual, and personal, various professional fields have developed codes of ethics to help guide members through areas that might be otherwise gray or uncertain. The following Getting Critical box includes information about the National Communication Association's ethical credo. Doctors take oaths to do no harm to their patients, and journalists follow ethical guidelines that promote objectivity and provide for the protection of sources. Although businesses and corporations have gotten much attention for high-profile cases of unethical behavior, business ethics has become an important part of the curriculum in many business schools, and more companies are adopting ethical guidelines for their employees. And at this time, you are free to look at the Getting Critical box um, at the end of 1.3 and to uh, review the key takeaways and exercises at the end of this chapter. Um, and this concludes 1.3. Next, you should go on to 1.4 in Chapter 1.